dive in. We're going to go do a little spelunking, and we're going to go explore the cave of our history, the history of God's people. And we're going to start today in the late 1700s, where faith was static. There wasn't much happening. There wasn't too much growth or vibrancy in the church globally, and that was especially true in the Protestant church. And Europe, which was then the hub of Christianity, uh, the idea of missions to the unreached people groups of the world was a very unpopular idea. Few people had the drive to spread the good news of Jesus to their own neighbors, let alone cross the world to do this. But all of that was about to change. In a small English village, a poor shoemaker named William Carey came to know Jesus. As he matured in his faith, Carey soaked himself in scripture, and as he read and learned, he heard a very real and personal call to missions. When Carey read Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he believed that God was asking him to be personally involved in the work of spreading the gospel, and not just anywhere, not just to his neighbors in the next village. Carey was to go to India. Having heard the call of God in his life, Carey obeyed. In 1792, he and 11 friends founded the Baptist Missionary Society. Carey taught himself, he taught himself every language that is associated with the Bible in just a few short years after his conversion. He wrote a book about the call and how this call to spread the gospel is a call for every Christian. Carey eventually found a job with the East India Trading Company. Now, you may have heard of them either from your history books or from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie series. But Carey um, got a job with them, and that was going to fund his trip to India. He would have to work just th- three months a year, and then he was free to do whatever else he wanted in India. So he boarded a ship, ready to sacrifice everything to follow God. Now, most people thought that Carey... His call and his ambition was just downright crazy, was senseless. In fact, officials at the East India Trading Company viewed missions as more than crazy. Listen to this official response to Carrie's quest. The sending out of missionaries into our eastern possessions is the maddest, most extravagant, most costly, most indefensible project which has ever been suggested by a moonstruck fanatic. Such a scheme is pernicious. Uh, pernicious, imprudent, useless, harmful, dangerous, profitless, fantastic. And when they say fantastic, they don't mean it in a good way. Ignoring criticism and people's doubts about his sanity, Carey followed God's call to take the gospel to India. Once a shoemaker from a small village, a small village, a small village in England, Carey is now called the father of modern missions. His passion for the gospel and missions motivated hundreds of other Christians to take big steps for God. Steps which led men and women missionaries to the South Pacific, to America, to Asia, and beyond. Despite all odds, all his personal limitations, many family tragedies, and the sheer immensity of the task that Carrie was asked to do, he was successful because of one thing, faith. 
The gospel was heard and spread in India and beyond, not because Kerry was so capable or because he had limitless financial backing or because he had the perfect five-step plan of evangelism. The fire of faith grew from European embers to a global blaze because Kerry had faith. Faith in a God that called him to an enormous task. Faith that his God was capable of blessing Carrie with everything he would need to be successful. The faith of one poor shoemaking Englishman changed the faith and the pace of Christianity forever. William Carey reminds me a lot of the story of Noah and the ark. Both men were asked to do something enormous. Building an ark and spreading the gospel across the world are probably equally inconceivable tasks if you consider their circumstances. As far as we know, Noah wasn't an architect, an engineer, or a carpenter. But God asked him to build a boat big enough to house and protect animals, birds, creeping things, his family, and food of every kind. William Carey was asked to take the gospel to a country he'd never seen, to a people whose religion and customs were totally foreign, and whose language he did not know. Despite the sheer magnitude of what God asked them to do, each man obeyed God's call in his life. The 11th chapter of Hebrews is often called the Great Faith Chapter. Your Bible might actually have it titled that way, because it lists many of the so-called giants of our faith, like Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage Christians whose faith is flagging, you know, just kind of treading water. The writer wants the Christians to hold up these giants of faith as their inspiration. Noah, our friend from Genesis 6 to 9, makes the short list of those whose faith was so great that it should inspire all Christians to continue on your journey even when your faith is flagging, no matter what troubles you face. Listen again to how Hebrews 11:7 describes faith. By faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. And throughout this chapter, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It says later that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we know that Noah was a person whose faith pleased God. In fact, Noah's story is mentioned many times in the New Testament by people who lived thousands of years after Noah did. Noah's faith was memorable faith, an example to all that came after him. Last week I talked about how the story of Genesis 6-9 to is a big deal because it reveals the good character of God. And it reveals a lot more than that. The story of Noah and the ark is also a big deal because it helps us understand what faith that pleases God looks like. Let's return to Genesis to kind of refresh our memory of Noah's faith. Last week we talked briefly about Noah's character. Genesis 6, 8, and 9 outlines the type of character Noah had. It starts by saying that Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Because of the complete corruption of human beings, God decided to send a flood to cleanse his creation from sin. But God also decided to preserve Noah. It's clear that Noah's character before the flood is what saved him from drowning along with the rest of humanity. And in the very next sentence, God describes Noah as righteous, 
blameless, and one who walks with God. I explained last week that these descriptions don't necessarily mean that Noah was sinless. Rather, they're a theological statement about the type of relationship that Noah had with God. Noah stood in right relationship with God. His life was wholeheartedly committed to his God. And I I want to nuance what I explained last week by looking at each of these descriptions, righteous, blameless, and walked with God. In the Old Testament, many people are called righteous. Noah, Abraham, David, those are just a few. But a righteous person was someone who lived in accordance to God's standards of behavior rather than selfish and corrupt human standards. Though many righteous people sinned, most of their actions toward God and their fellow humans were considered right. Righteous people, they lived according to what God wanted. They avoided sin and treated others well. The testimony of the Old Testament is that many could be righteous. In fact, all Israelites were expected to be righteous. Unfortunately, in the time of Noah, the righteous people are almost non-existent. In Genesis 7-1, God says to Noah, You alone are righteous before me in this generation. Noah was the only person in his time that was living according to God's standards of behavior. He was the only one pleasing God because his thoughts, remember from last week, were not only evil continually like the rest of human, human beings. In fact, in New Testament times, Noah's righteous behavior is still famous. Second Peter 2.5 calls Noah a herald or preacher of righteousness. Now there's something to aspire to. Genesis also calls him blameless. The word blameless is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for a sacrificial animal that was without blemish. Animals without spots, color variation, injuries, or physical abnormalities were the most valuable animals for trade. And their physical purity and costliness made them the most God-honoring sacrifices. Now, Noah being described as a blameless person isn't really an indication of Noah's physical purity or, you know, that he was really good looking. Instead, it's an indication of the purity of Noah's actions toward other people and in contrast to other people. While every Israelite was expected to be righteous and many achieved it, according to the Old Testament, blamelessness, well, It wasn't expected of most, and very few people achieved it. King David is one of a few people who are said to have tried to be blameless, but only two people won the the label, Noah and Job. So now Noah goes from being a common righteous man to someone blameless, someone much more distinctive because of his blameless character. But then Genesis takes this character even farther by saying that Noah walked with God. Clearly, this describes the type of intimate relationship Noah had with God. Enoch, Noah's great-grandfather, is the only other person in the Bible who is said to have walked with God. Enoch was a man who pleased the Lord so much that God took him, presumably to heaven, before he died. Imagine having such a close relationship with God, living such a righteous and blameless life, that someone would describe you as a person who walks with God. In Scripture, that is incredibly rare. 
But in modern times, it's pretty common for us to hear people describe the Christian life as a walk with God. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use that image. If you like the image of walking with God beside you and that helps you kind of stay in a Christ-like path, then by all means, embrace the image. But consider, too, that we need to be careful not to romanticize this image to the point that it becomes separated from righteous and blameless behavior. Enoch's walk with God to the extent that God exempted him from experiencing death. Noah found favor in God's sight. He was righteous and blameless, and he also walked with God. But God had a different plan for Noah. God decided that through Noah, he would preserve life on earth. And to accomplish God's purposes, God had some very big tasks for Noah. Think of the story in Genesis 6, when God tells Noah that he's going to send a flood to destroy all life on the earth. Last week, we saw the reason God does this. Because human, human sin was so great that God decided to cleanse his creation from sin and restore it to its original intention. God wanted to restore a right relationship between himself and his created human beings. So God tells Noah, he's going to send a flood to destroy the earth, a flood that will cover everything and erase all life. But God would preserve the human race through Noah. All Noah had to do was build an ark big enough to fit his family, food of every kind, animals, birds, and creeping things of every kind. God gave Noah the plan for the ark. He gave him the specific dimensions of the boat, what type of wood to use, told him to build rooms inside, and there should be three decks, and he needed to build a roof and a door, and then when it was all built, he needed to cover the inside and outside with pitch so that the the ark wouldn't leak. Now, please transport yourself into this scene for me. Imagine what's going on. Noah just got the news that God was going to send a flood to destroy the earth. In the next breath, God tells Noah that he has to build this huge ark. And when we read the story, there's no indication that Noah knows how to do any of this. It doesn't say that he was good with his hands, that he was a carpenter, and we don't even know what kind of tools Noah had. This is a long time ago. I don't know what kind of rudimentary saws and hammers they had then. And maybe like in a Disney movie, Noah tells the beavers, use your teeth to chop down the tree, and then he tells the elephants, okay, now you wrap your trunk around the tree and pull it over here, and I'm going to stack them up. In fact, not knowing where Noah lived, we don't even know how plentiful trees were, or if Noah had ever seen or heard of a boat, let alone conceive of a boat of such mammoth proportions. And God tells Noah, make an ark, three-quarters the length of a football field, and three stories high. That's a huge task. And we have no evidence that Noah was skilled or well-equipped to do what God asked him. If I were Noah, I'd probably look at God and say, do you want me to what? Are you kidding me? Seriously, are you kidding me? But, you know, what's significant about this story Not a single comment or question or rant of Noah's is recorded in these entire four chapters, which span hundreds of years. That's a big deal. Noah says nothing in response to the huge task that God had set before him. He doesn't complain to his wife or shake his fist at the sky. Now, I'm sure Noah wasn't mute. I'm not saying he never talked. But... I'm sure he also had many conversations with God because that's the type of intimate relationship he had with the Lord. 
but it's not his words that we have recorded. All we see are Noah's actions. And I believe that whoever wrote this story down for us did that on purpose. The storyteller is saying to us that it's not Noah's words that are important. It's Noah's actions. And in this story, Noah's actions are always in accordance with God's plan. Now, we'd call that obedience. So we need to zero in on the story in chapters 6 and 7 to take a look at what type of action Noah has. God tells Noah, build the ark. And he gives Noah the blueprints and the list of materials for a huge boat. And then in Genesis 6.22, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. God then tells Noah to take into the ark seven pairs of every clean animal, one pair of every unclean animal, and seven pairs of every bird. And Genesis 6.7 says, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. In the next few verses, the flood comes, and Noah gathers his family and all the animals and birds and creeping things in the ark. And verse 9 says, just as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16 repeats that the people and animals went into the ark as Noah had commanded him. Do you see what's going on here? No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the odds, no matter how inconceivable the task, Noah obeys God. God gives Noah a seemingly impossible, insurmountable, inconceivable task to build a boat larger than any structure Noah's probably ever seen. God asks Noah to then fill the boat with animals and food of every kind and then get on this boat himself and wait out a flood that was coming to destroy the earth. Essentially, God is asking Noah to trust that he will preserve Noah's life even when he's surrounded by destruction. To every crazy command that God gives, Noah's response is always obedience. Whoever wrote this story down didn't think Noah's conversation, questions, or prayers were important to remember. I'm sure they were important, but it's not what they wanted us to remember. The big deal of this story is Noah's faith displayed through obedient action. When God gives us a task, we can talk all we want. We can worry. I am very good at worrying. We can plan and strategize. We can complain to friends and say, why me? We can spend hours in prayer. We can ask God a hundred questions about how we could be capable of doing what he asks of us. Some of those things might be helpful. Others certainly aren't. But in the end, what matters most is not words, but actions that obey God's desires. Remember that the book of Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah's actions were a premier example of faith that is sure God will do what he says he will do. Faith that believes that God is capable of doing the inconceivable. Faith that God will provide the tools, plans, and time enough to accomplish the greatest task ever imagined. When I read scripture, I see a God who consistently gives enormous tasks to people who in the eyes of the world are insignificant. He asked Moses, a man who wasn't good with words, in fact, he probably had some kind of speech impediment, to go before Pharaoh and convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. Through Rahab, a prostitute from an unclean people group, God provided escape 
for two Israelite spies. And then Rahab is the ancestor of King David and of Jesus. Before he was a king, David was a shepherd. He was the one chosen by God when he was still a boy to face off against a giant warrior named Goliath. God then appointed the shepherd boy to be the king of a great nation. How could a boy defeat a giant warrior? How could a shepherd become a great king? For that matter, how could some poor, undereducated fishermen from Galilee be the ones to spread the gospel to all nations? God has plans for people that are greater than the plans that people can conceive for themselves. God chooses He chooses unlikely people to accomplish his great plans. Shepherds and prostitutes, fishermen and shoemakers. He uses the lives of doubters and addicts, the unemployed and the retired, homeless and homemakers, to bring glory to his name. Great things are accomplished when someone hears the call of God and obeys. When I was a 20-year-old college student, God gave me a huge, inconceivable, enormously large, I-can't-do-this task. I was serving as a resident assistant in the dorm where I lived. And when I looked forward at that year in my job as a resident assistant, I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to have coffee with people. We're going to play games. I'm going to play events. And we're just going to get to know one another. And we're going to have a good time. And I'm going to make some friends. God had very different, much bigger and better plans for me. Not far into that year, I realized that I was surrounded by almost all of the women on my floor were unhealthy, self-destructive, lost, broken. Let me tell you just a few of their stories. One of them, I'll call her Amy. Amy had been date raped two years before. In fact, did you know that one in four college women will be sexually assaulted by the age of 24? Amy had been date raped by someone she knew, someone she trusted. And for the last two years had been in intensive counseling, but she just could not heal from that wound. That event shook up everything that she knew to be true about herself, about God. To the point that Amy that year attempted suicide four times. I'll never forget the day when I'm sitting in the lobby of my residence hall working on my Greek homework, books spread out around me, and all of a sudden, charging through the lobby, come two police officers and four emergency medical technicians. And I thought, what's going on? Later that day, I get a call from my boss. She says, please come to my office. I need to tell you something. My boss had been given permission by Amy to tell me the story, to tell me that she had been raped and that she was just really experiencing a lot of emotional trauma to the point where she wanted to end her life. And I heard that story. And my job was to go back to Amy and tell her that I knew her story and to tell her that I was going to have to check up on her every couple hours. Essentially, I was the person who was on suicide watch for her. Amy's roommate, I'll call Danielle, Danielle one day collapsed in the shower. 
and she could not get up. And three of the women who lived on my floor had to physically pick her up and carry her back to her bed. I, I, I didn't know anything really about Danielle, to, why this would happen. Maybe she was sick. Well, I discovered that Danielle would get up at about 4.30 in the morning and she would go run 10, 15 miles. And while a seasoned athlete who knows how to take care of themselves, that's not always a problem for them. Danielle wasn't drinking water, and she was barely eating anything. She thought she was fat. She was probably 115 pounds, um, and she was addicted to exercise. And she would go out and pound the pavement, and she was breaking down her body to the point where she collapsed in the shower. One of my other friends that I got to know really well was just so depressed she could not get out of bed. And there were a couple weeks in there where she thought she was going to have to drop out of school because she just she could not get herself out of bed. The girls that lived right next to me were abusing drugs and alcohol all the time, almost three or four nights a week. That's what I was living in the midst of. And I heard God say to me, Corey, this is what I have for you. Care for them. And I said, what? Me? I, I can't do that. I, I, I have no experience with counseling. I've never taken a counseling class. I've never known suffering like this. I don't even know what to say. But that was what God had for me that year. I had planned fun and coffee and games and friendships. And he planned for me listening and caring and being with people who were suffering. And it didn't matter that I didn't know what that was about. It didn't matter that I didn't have any experience. Because God was with me in that. I simply tried to put one foot in front of the other that year and just do what God asked me to do. Trusting that, man, he was going to accomplish something through me. And later that year and then the year after that, and I've received some emails since then, a lot of those women have thanked me for the presence that I was in their life. Not that I fixed them. Not that I had all the answers. But that I was someone who they could reveal the very deepest and darkest wounds of their lives and not find judgments or, or, you know, someone who just had all the answers, but someone who would listen and sit with them. And that to them was very healing. That wasn't my plan. <laughs> it wasn't my strategy. It wasn't what I had for myself. But God always has bigger and better plans than we have for ourselves. Do you have a story like this? A time when God gave you a big task, one that you did not have the skills or experience or know-how to accomplish. Are you an unlikely disciple facing an inconceivable obstacle? Then you're in good company. All of us who follow Jesus are given tasks that seem to be beyond our capabilities. Isn't Jesus' command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us enough? Many of us are facing tasks that seem as big as an ark. The great faith chapter of Hebrews reminds us to get our inspiration from those who come before us. We can look back at stories like Noah's story and allow his faith to inspire us. Noah showed us that faith is all about obedience. 
if we cut out the chatter and we just boldly do all that God asks of us, then God will show us that his plans are the best plans and that he is trustworthy. Noah learned this well. Noah built the ark. He stuffed it with food and his family and animals and then hunkered down and waited as a storm raged outside. Eventually, God calmed the storm and settled the ark on dry land. And then God told Noah to come out of the ark. Noah comes out with his family and all the animals. And what is the first thing that Noah does? Noah worships God. Noah's faith, it inspires and challenges me to be obedient. But more than that, Noah's faith inspires me because of his worship. Read with me Genesis 8:20. Then Noah built the, uh, an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What would you do if you just got back from the first boat ride ever through the greatest storm ever known? I think I'd fall on the ground, kiss it, and vow to never get on a boat again. I get seasick, and that's just like a nightmare to think of. But I read that Noah steps off the boat, builds an altar, and worships God. I read that, and I'm impressed. But then I realize that Noah's kind of worship, that's not my idea of worship. Look at what he did. He took one of every clean animal and every clean bird and gave them as a burnt offering to God. Noah's act of worship was sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice. Don't you think that at the end of that perilous boat ride, when you touch land for the first time, and now that you realize that your task is to repopulate the earth, you might want to hang on to the best of the best of the animals. It is a big deal that Noah takes one of every clean animal and one of every clean bird and burns them up in sacrifice to God. This is a bold, capital B-O-L-D, bold act of worship. Noah's actions say that God is so good and so trustworthy and so mighty that Noah doesn't have to worry about sacrificing the best of the best of the animals. The God Noah worships has shown that he is mighty to save, that he cares for and is capable of preserving the righteous. His God is the creator of all life, the God of abundance. So Noah boldly worships, joyfully, through sacrifice. Sacrifice is not what immediately comes to my mind when I think of the word worship. Is it something that comes to mind for you? When I think of the word worship, I think of music and singing and instruments in church. And maybe the car radio in my mother's car. But for Noah, worship was sacrifice, and it was sacrifice from the best of the best that Noah had to offer God. Can we maybe expand our idea of worship is to kind of include sacrifice? Now, the idea of sacrifice, that is hugely unpopular in our culture. Many American cultural values motivate people to amass things, money or material goods, status or time, and then hoard them as though possession is ultimately and totally fulfilling. Few of our values promote personal sacrifice. 
So when people are asked to sacrifice something, what do they do? They hang up the phone, they slam the door, they yell at you, they storm away. I think this is why most pastors in our culture today totally avoid the topic of tithing. What do you think about this quotation from theologian D. Stuart Briscoe? There has always been a segment of society which regards sacrifice as a waste and can always find better uses for resources than to spend them in acts of generous praise and thanksgiving. But those who never learn the joys of giving become shriveled in their hearts even as they become bloated in their assets. What do you think about that? Do you know someone who shriveled in their heart because they haven't figured out the joy of sacrifice? Can you hold the words, sacrifice, worship, thanksgiving, and enjoy together, or do they make you uncomfortable? Now, those are some big, potentially challenging questions. But you might be wondering, why is, why is this important? Why is Corey making such a big deal about sacrificial worship? Return with me to Noah's story for the answer. When Noah offered all those animals to God, God has an equally bold, capital B-O-L-D, bold response. Here's, here Genesis 8.21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I've done. Next, God blesses Noah and his sons. God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah's act of sacrificial worship was so pleasing to God's senses that God turns around and blesses Noah. God loves sacrificial worship. It even smells good to him. Because when we worship this way, we boldly proclaim to God that we believe that he can and will supply everything we need. Like Noah, we symbolically acknowledge that what we sacrifice to God are really things that God gave to us in the first place. Yes, our music and our singing, those are pleasing to God. Those are acts of worship. God loves really anything that we devote to him. But I want us to consider a broader definition of worship, one that includes sacrificing the best of the best of what we have to God. This could be money. It could be time. It could be acts of service. It could be your spiritual gifts. However God has blessed you, you can worship him by sacrificing some of your best back to God. Do it because God is more than worthy of that sacrifice. What you offer will please God just like Noah's sacrifice. I'm going to make a bold statement. We can all have faith like Noah. Yes, he was righteous and he was blameless and he walked with God. But we can all have faith like Noah. All of us in some ways are unlikely disciples. We lack the skills, experience, and know-how to complete the tasks that God gives us. Having faith like Noah means that we boldly do all that God asks of us, even when we seem inadequate or the task seems impossible. It means trusting that God will supply everything we need to accomplish his purposes through us. Instead of being frozen or fear or babbling like fools, faith like Noah does. Go home today and think of your life. Think of all that God has accomplished through you when you've obeyed. 
think of all that God could accomplish through you if you obey. Yes, you and me, all of us, we're all unlikely disciples. Shoemakers, homemakers, bakers, we can build an ark like Noah. All we need is to be sure of what we hope for and to believe in things we can't see. Would you pray with me over these things as we prepare to worship through song? God who asks. We don't know why you ask us to do things that we seem totally inadequate to do, but you ask anyway. Lord, enable us to listen and to obey believing and trusting that when we just put one step in front of the other and do what you ask us, you will come in and accomplish through us. We are your unlikely disciples called by you to do great things. Help us believe that. Help us to know how to live it out. And help us leave today figuring out, working out, walking out what it means to sacrifice boldly back to you in acts of worship. Amen.